0: Will regulated militia be necessary to the security of a free state? The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad you're with us on the program today. Uh, we're going to be taking a sort of another 50,000-foot look at uh, the year ahead. Last uh, program, first one of 2023, we spoke with Mark Walters, host of Armed American Radio, Uh, Joining us on today's program, Larry Keene, Senior Vice President and General Counsel of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, otherwise known as the Gun Industry Lobby, right, according to the uh, anti-gun folks out there. We've got a lengthy conversation with Larry touching on, uh, again, some of the the biggest uh, threats to the firearms industry, as well as some, uh, hopefully, opportunities for the industry uh, as well this year. And of course, those threats to the firearms industry ultimately end up being a threat to our right to keep and bear arms. We've already seen the Biden administration go after home-built firearms, right? Uh, So they don't want you to be able to make your gun at home. They really don't want you to be able to buy your firearm in a store either. Uh, If they can't repeal the Second Amendment, they can at least turn it into, well, I won't say at least, they can try to turn it into a non-entity. Uh, by either bankrupting the uh, firearms industry or imposing uh, so many numerous regulations that uh, you have to navigate a legal minefield in order to exercise a, a fundamental constitutional right. So, with uh, with that in mind, take a look and a listen to our conversation with Larry Keene of the NSSF. Well, Larry, happy 2023 to you. Thanks so much for coming on Cam and Company.
1: Thanks, Cam. Always a pleasure to spend time with you. I hope you had nice holidays.
0: I did. And, uh, you know, now we're right back to it. Uh, and, you know, listen, I mean, 2023 is starting off uh, in in a very big way. I mean, you've got, you know, potential gun bans on the move in uh, states like Illinois, uh, lots of lawsuits going on, both, you know, in defense of our uh, Second Amendment rights. And uh, unfortunately, um, you know, lawsuits are trying to deprive us uh, of our right to keep and bear arms. I want to ask you just, you know, just a general uh, question. First off, what are what are NSSF's biggest priorities for for the new year?
1: You know, that's a great question, uh, and I have spent a lot of time thinking about that in the last few days as we begin the 118th Congress uh, as soon as the speakers <laughs> turn, <determine, laughs> which is a whole other conversation. Um, so, what are our priorities, and, and you know, what is feasible, what is infeasible given the political uh, realities? It's not going to be possible to pass pro gun legislation in Congress or to pass anti-gun legislation in Congress. So the only things that can pass in Congress that affects our world really is uh, conservation uh, policy, legislation that tends to be bipartisan. So that's possible. And so there's some, some good things there. Uh, anything on the policy side really has to focus on appropriations language, report language. There will be a lot of oversight hearings um, in the House, you know, had conversations yesterday with Chairman Comer, uh, for example, um, on the appropriation side, you know, I, I had conversation yesterday with Congressman Zinke, who's returned to Congress on the 118th. So that'll be the focus, a lot of oversight uh, hearings on uh, ATF, DOJ, the FBI, that sort of thing, a- and as well as um, interior fish and wildlife. We are very concerned with the administration's uh, anti-traditional ammunition view. They want to ban the use of traditional ammunition, uh, and they're taking steps to implement those policies. So we're going to try to stop that and protect traditional ammunition uh, because those policies are not based on science. It's based on caving to pressure from anti-hunting groups, and radical environmental groups like the Center for Biodiversity. So, uh, you know, trying to figure that out now um, and try to prioritize certain pieces of legislation will s- seek to have reintroduced, like the fair access to banking and the FIND Act, uh, for sure, uh, will seek to have reintroduced. So, uh, you know, we gotta wait for chairman to come in. We gotta wait for staff to be hired and assigned, and uh, before we can really start moving, but we expect to see some legislation introduced uh, in this Congress again, like the Fair Access to Banking and the Find Act, and others, you know, right away. And then we're working towards other legislation that might um, get introduced. Even if it doesn't move and become law, uh, it sends a message. And it often takes many, many years to get legislation actually passed. So you have to keep at it, reintroduce it, keep building the, the case with the legislation. So,
0: Yeah, I, uh, I'm thinking of uh, uh, Representative Richard Hudson's National Right to Carry Reciprocity Act. That was the first bill that came to mind that, you know, you just keep reintroducing it and keep hoping you get some uh, progress each and every year. Now, you talked about, you know, the the oversight role that uh, that the House is going to have. And. I think it's really important because, as you say, with the opportunity for both pro and anti-gun legislation um, to move through Congress largely tied up, I think, because of the uh, the, the partisan uh, <laughs> and, and split divide there. I- I'm a little concerned, Larry, about the uh, administrative actions that we might be seeing from the White House. Um, so let me ask you, uh, are, are, you know, what do you anticipate uh, coming down the road from ATF this year? Um, yeah, we still yeah. have the stabilizing brace issue out there, right?
1: Yeah the brace rule will come out sometime this month and I expect it'll come out right before shot show or right at the time of shot show um uh, they filed some papers in a, in a, a a case the other day indicating it would would it, they anticipated the final rule would come out in January and you know there's a long history frankly of ATF making major announcements at the shot show and then being there to discuss it with members of industry, so so that'll happen. We saw the letters, uh, the letter to industry that just came out the other day purporting to clarify uh, the prior final rule. And as is often the case, when ATF puts out these clarifying letters, they just make things more confused. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the sort of ghost gun issue. And that is clearly just in response to pressure from anti-gun groups that aren't happy that that the rule uh, it doesn't go far enough in their opinion of course atf is confined by the language of the gun control act we think they have stretched that language beyond recognition and and we think that that final rule is really built on a house of cards it's you know it's just a it's a foundation built in sand because they're misreading the statute to advance this policy
0: well, and it is interesting that the ATF came out and originally said because I, I there was a one of the lawsuits that had been filed over the uh, the, the quote unquote ghost gun rules, there was this fascinating exchange um, where the plaintiff, I think it was for uh, it wasn't for polymer 80, but it was for a, a Texas uh, company, had argued, listen, th- this law is going to apply to us or this rule is going to apply to us. We you know, we don't make the kits, but we make the individual eighty percent lowers. And the DOJ attorney said, no, you guys are fine. It, it only covers kits. And the judge said, well, I mean, does that kind of moot your case? And the the attorney said, well, no, because this rule is written so vaguely. And then here we are just a couple months later, ATF, what what the DOJ said in court is no longer true. Now DOJ says, no, it doesn't just apply to the kids. Now it does apply to these individual 80% receivers. And again, Larry, as you say, it appears that that 180-degree reversal was the result solely of lobbying on the part of the the gun control groups who wanted a more expansive reading of the ATF's rule.
1: So when the rule first came out, the gun control groups were, you know, d- taking a victory lap. Mm-hmm. And then they bothered to read the rule, and it it doesn't do what they thought it did. The lawyer for DOJ in Texas was actually correct. The rule doesn't ban 80% receivers. They can't ban something that is not yet a frame or receiver because the statute defines firearms as a weapons or readily convertible to a weapon b frame or receiver it doesn't say b frame or receiver or readily convertible to a frame or receiver and that's the false basis of the entire rule it's built on you know house of cards that is not what the statute says we pointed that out in our comment letter so After the gun control groups bothered to read the rule, they were like, oh, this doesn't do what we want it to do. They went back and sued ATF because the rule didn't do what they wanted. Now, that lawsuit, as far as I know, was still pending. They clearly would have no standing to bring that challenge. You don't get to sue because you don't like the rule uh, or you don't think the rule goes far enough. But what did ATF do? Now they've clarified. And. Depending on how you read that, and I read it and it's scratching my head to try to figure out what it actually says, you know, to make the argument that they are now saying 80% receivers. So, but this has been a perennial question since they've adopted this false reading of the statute. When is a hunk of metal, you know, a frame or receiver and when is it a hunk of metal? If it's a hunk of metal, it's not regulated because the statute says frame or receiver and so until it's a frame or receiver stretching and stretching and stretching and then you got you know these rulings well and that's where the term you know it's completed partially but not all the way so it's 80 percent done it's not a frame receiver it's not regulated now they're trying to say well and we wouldn't we would i mean for years and years and the reason it matters like the major manufacturers who don't sell 80 percent receivers is when it becomes a frame of receiver is when record keeping and marking requirements kick in. So like the big guys, they need to know when is it a frame of receiver? And it's a little bit like the, the old sort of uh, Supreme Court line about pornography. Uh, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And yeah. The answer is we can't really define it. Uh, send it in and we'll tell you. Of course, this, there's no legal requirement that you send it in. You have you're supposed to be able to read a statute and understand it for yourself. Right due process right like and if you can it's void it's it's void what we lawyers call void for vagueness so you know but i think it is very challenging for atf to say well this this is the criteria and they articulated the best i ever saw in the lawsuits by the gun control groups against atf under the trump administration atf in one of their filings laid out exactly how they look at an object and decide and that was the clearest articulation I'd ever seen by ATF. I went and sh- I remember sharing that with folks in the industry and say, hey, pay attention. This is the clearest, you know, articulation <laughs> of how they evaluate it. And so there's a little bit of that, like indexing. If you know, Look, if you put like a little circle and say drill here, right, like or mm. indentation. So this is where you drill. They were saying, well, that's close enough to to be considered a frame or receiver because, you know, you, um, and then they made the argument, right? they did the raid of polymer eighty, the buy build and shoot kits, which nothing ever came of that because everything in the kit is not regulated, so how does the you know amalgamation of all of those unregulated parts make it all of a sudden regulated right That's the and they never prosecuted uh, polymer eighty after that raid of their warehouse in uh Nevada, I think it was. So um, we're back to that. And so the rule was understood as so long as you don't sell the kit, right? All together, you know, that's the problem. So you can't do that as, as as articulated by the rule and as it was understood and has ATF explained to folks in the industry. And now they seem to have moved that line in response to a lawsuit by the gun control groups. Um and I bet you now my guess is that lawsuit now magically goes away.
0: <laughs> I'm I'm guessing you're right. But, you know, listen, I mean, given uh, what we've seen with the, you know, 80 percent frames of receivers, given what we've seen with the gun control groups lobbying the CDC uh, to remove defensive gun use data from their studies. I think there's a genuine concern that the uh, you know, the, the anti gunners have a lot of sway in this administration. And one of the things that they've been pushing, Larry, is The idea of uh, if they can't get a gun ban through Congress, well, why can't they do one through regulation, right? Why can't we declare that uh, a certain number of semi automatic firearms are readily converted to machine guns and therefore should be classified as machine guns under the NFA? Um, We've seen, you know, the Brady campaign has made this argument in court filings. The Trace had a big story a couple of months ago laying out how the ATF could do this without a vote in Congress. It, it sounds kind of crazy. I mean, I, I call it the nuclear option uh, for the Biden oh, administration if they want to do a gun ban. But how concerned are you and how concerned is the industry that, that the administration may actually take that step this year?
1: We, well, certainly this argument we see in court, uh, chiefly coming, but not exclusively from the Brady Center, um, that somehow um, a semi-automatic rifle, an AR-15, a modern sporting rifle, is is a machine gun. And so, therefore, when it was sold as a semi-automatic rifle, legally, right, for decades, um, and classified by ATF as being a semi-automatic and not an automatic firearm, and therefore an NFA item, we are concerned about it. We're seeing it in court. And it hasn't really been rejected by the courts as absurd on its face. We've talked to ATF about this, and, and what they have told us is, the NFA, the statute says, uh, readily restored, not readily converted, right? So so it has to have been a machine gun in the first place to be restored to operate as an automatic firearm. So, but it is very concerning. This is a lot of the same conversations or concerns that we heard during the Obama administration when they couldn't pass gun legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, they're going to use administrative power. and and. The administration does have a lot of, um, you know, uh, room to maneuver in that space. And there are lots of things I suppose that they could do. I don't want to say anything here <laughs> about, because <laughs> no. I don't idea right? So, uh, no, do I, don't want, uh, no, we, we don't want, no, we don't want to walk, walk down, down that
0: road. Um, sure.
1: but do I think they can say, um, or will say, uh, AR 15s are actually machine guns. I don't think so because then they have to admit that. That would be to admit that since 1963, they have allowed machine guns to be sold. That's, I don't think ATF is going to go there. Um, but I mean, you know, uh, we see them stretching the envelope um, with these rulings and these, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see what happens with the pistol race that'll come out, uh, you know, I mean, you know, they said these things weren't, but I think it's going to be hard to challenge that, that ruling, because the ruling doesn't say you can't have these. It just says, this is the test. Of course, you know, when, when you try to apply the test and basically everything fails. And I love the part of the, <laughs> the proposed rule where it says, here's the test. If you pass the test, we can still say it's, it's bad." <laughs> So how is the average person supposed to know? Well, I've got this thing. I bought it legally. Yeah. I don't know. What do you do? They don't. I mean, it's it's um, you know,
0: which I think is a feature, not a bug, by the way, of the rule to make it as as hard to understand and as hard to comply with as possible. I think that's uh, that's one of the goals of the
1: uh, the the anti gun side.
0: Yeah. All well, right. Listen, Larry, I know we've only got a couple minutes left, so I could talk to you all hour because there's so much stuff going on here. But, um, you know, you, you talk about uh, whether or not this the stabilizing brace rule can uh, uh, withstand a court challenge. We know that the courts obviously are, are going to be hopping. Uh, they have been since the Bruin decision. I think that's going to continue to be the case in 2023. What are just um, I'll just make this a quick one. We'll 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 have you back on and delve deeper into some of the illegal cases. But what are some of the ones that. So the the big lawsuits that that uh, NSSF is interested in, obviously, you all are involved in a couple of lawsuits, right? Uh, uh, taking on some of these uh, uh, provisions that are yeah. in in essence designed to uh, to encourage junk lawsuits against the industry. But but what else is it that, uh, that the industry is looking at here this year?
1: Well, so certainly these public the rise of public nuisance claims again. So the New York law that we challenged is now in the Second Circuit. We filed. Uh, In New Jersey and Delaware, with statutes with uh, essentially similar laws allowing public nuisance claims, they are an attempt to sidestep the protection of lawful commerce and arms act and say, well, now there's a statutory claim. uh, And so um, we can bring the action. And we've now also seen lawsuits filed in New York by the city of Buffalo and the city of Rochester, Mm -hmm. against actually the entire industry. Uh, Based on the New York public nuisance statute. Um, So those were just filed right before Christmas. No one has been served yet, but those are very important. We are involved in the Oregon litigation against measure 114. And we um, anticipate being involved in uh, filing a lawsuit in Illinois, if they pass an assault weapons ban in Washington state, if they pass an assault weapons ban. And there is a magazine capacity restriction law in uh, Rhode Island, uh, where a federal court denied a uh, motion for a preliminary injunction. And we're working with the plaintiffs in that case. And uh, Clement and Murphy, uh, Paul Clement, the former Solicitor General, will be handling that appeal on behalf of those plaintiffs. Uh, because the decision is just so bad, wrong, uh, and and really bad law. So uh, there's the Mexican lawsuit against the dealers in Arizona we're concerned about, and the Mexican lawsuit against the industry out of Boston which is on appeal we're concerned about. Uh, and then you know there's there's uh, the advertising to minor law in California we're watching that we may or may not bring an action there. There's the um, Fortunately, the fee shifting provision was struck down, but we've been asked about the public, you know, the, the sort of Texas model legislation in California. Sue, mm-hmm. um, I don't think that, that we will be filing a, a facial challenge to that law because it, it, it requires an underlying violation of um, California law in order to bring an action. If there's an action, it depends on, you know, we may we may look at that, um, but uh, it's also, in, I think, in a clear attempt to sidestep the PLCAA, and I think there are, like the Texas abortion law, frankly, there are serious standing issues about whether somebody completely disconnected and not affected in any way, no injury um, in California can file because somebody was in, uh, somehow was in illegal possession or misused a firearm. You know, somebody in Southern California and somebody from, you know, San Francisco with absolutely no connection. And another question would be, let's say you have one event in California. Can every single citizen in California file a lawsuit against uh, an industry <laughs> member for that one event? According to the statute, yes, that's obviously absurd. So there are problems with that statute. I think we have to wait to see if it ever gets applied, I suspect it will and then and then we'll deal with it at that time. I don't think it's it's uh, susceptible to a facial challenge because in a facial challenge you have to say there is no possibility no possible set of facts where the statute uh, cannot be applied and so if for example, you had uh, you know acme um, guns uh you know break the law and sell. Uh, ban firearms in California, um, you know, th- they could be sued, right? And, and and in that case, they wouldn't have any protection under the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act because of the predicate exception. So we have to see how that plays out. We're definitely interested in the advertising the minor case. And there are two of those. And the other case that's important out there, uh, and kudos to Chuck Michelle for pursuing this, is um, you know, a challenge to the handgun roster post Brewing. Mm, yeah, I mean, and you see all the cases in New York now, in New Jersey, with these you know state laws being passed that really are just um, you know uh, poking, you know, sticking their thumb in the eye of the Supreme Court, and and really just defying the Supreme Court. So I, I do hope we will see the Supreme Court accept you know, an assault weapons ban case, a magazine capacity restriction case. Many of the cases that were, you know, on its way to the Supreme Court where cert was granted and it was sent back. You know, there's a challenge in the Fourth Circuit to the Colby decision in Maryland, you know, the M- Maryland sole weapons ban. That has been argued before the Fourth Circuit. I listened to the argument uh, and I thought the argument went very well for our side, yeah. always reading tea leaves, But that could be, you know, a, on its way back to the Supreme Court or to the Supreme Court, and then we'll see what happens in like the cases out in California, Duncan and and all of those cases. Um, So I I do think the Supreme Court in the next, you know, three to five years will take, I hope, uh, you know, there will certainly be asked to take uh, some more uh, Second Amendment cases.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um. And uh, I think, as you say, the the Fourth Circuit case uh, dealing with Maryland's ban on so-called assaults. Um. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens if the Fourth Circuit uh, decides that the ban is is actually unconstitutional. Whether Maryland will appeal that to the uh, Supreme Court. But I guess we'll we'll, well have to first, wait and I see.
1: Know, as we see all the time, like in all the time in the Ninth Circuit. You know, even if you win, it goes yep. on and you lose.
0: Right. Right. That's that. Yeah. Okay. Very good point. Yeah. Uh, so Larry, listen
1: my expectation is that we will win that's bianchi's the name of the case it just came back to me two one but i think you could see it go on bonk. but you're exactly right does you know the state has to has to do that political calculus if we take it to the supreme court are are we likely to lose and then it's bad law then they you know create bad law so mm-hmm. from their perspective um but you know if if um, the court, you know, rules in favor of the plaintiffs in that case, and there's no on-bank, or they go on-bank, and and the court says, well, Bruin says what it says, and so the state loses, the plaintiffs win, uh, you know. But if it goes the other way, and they say, no, 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 panel was wrong, it, you know, that's not what Bruin says, then the path of the Supreme Court is decided by the plaintiffs, not not state of Maryland. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's part of the calculation. Well, you know, why do I right. know? Bob? you know? So. Yep. Well, there are a
0: lot of cases to, uh, to keep our eyes on. Uh, and I know we'll be talking about a lot of them with you over the course of this year, as well as, uh, you know, the latest machinations uh, there on Capitol Hill and from the uh, ATF and some of the other alphabet agencies. But uh, Larry, as always, really appreciate you spending some time with us today. And uh, I look forward to doing this again very, very soon. Thanks for all of the information. I appreciate Larry joining us on the program. And uh, yeah, we'll be talking with him again very soon, but uh, now let's turn our attention to today's armed citizen story. Our good deed of the day, as well as our recidivist report. We'll start there with a uh, case out of Pennsylvania where the uh, police chief in Breckenridge, Pennsylvania was uh, shot and killed a uh, officer wounded the uh, suspect uh, in that case, the individual uh, accused of killing the police chief and shooting at uh, police officers. Uh, No surprise. Not someone who was unknown uh, to local police in the uh, Pittsburgh area, Uh, Aaron Swan Jr., uh, who was shot and killed when he got into a shootout with police on Monday night in the uh, Homewood neighborhood of Pittsburgh. Uh, His criminal history dates back a decade, starts in 2013 when he pleaded guilty to theft and disorderly conduct. He got probation for that sentence, which is not outside of the uh, realm of the the normal, right? Um, And again, theft, disorderly conduct. These are nonviolent offenses. It's a first offense. So that's actually understandable. You'd get a slap on the wrist. You'd get probation, and you'd be told, don't do it again. The very next year, however, Swan was charged with homicide uh, when a man was found dead in the parking lot of a Baptist church. Now, prosecutors ended up withdrawing that charge. Only, though, after Swan agreed to cooperate and testify against another man who ended up being convicted of the murder. Instead, Swan pleaded guilty to robbery slash serious bodily injury and conspiracy. And that's when he did receive a sweetheart deal. In exchange for his testimony, Swan was sentenced to three to six years in prison. That's bad enough. But he only served a little more than a year behind bars when he was released. Now, again, I understand. If you want to uh go after, you know, the person you believe mo- is most responsible for a crime, you offer co-conspirators or uh, ancillary figures a plea deal, uh cooperate with us and in exchange for your testimony, you know, we'll 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 prosecute you or allow you to plead guilty to lesser charges so we can get this guy and put him away. However, when you do 33% of the low end of your plea deal sentence, that that's that's I think a bit egregious Uh, in 2017 court records show that Swan received probation after pleading guilty to having an illegal firearm as a convicted felon. I might add a taunting police and a police animal escape reckless endangerment, criminal trespass and resisting arrest. That is just mind blowing to me. Probation for being a felon in possession of a firearm, a violent felon, by the way, in possession of a firearm but he got probation. In 2019, Swan pleaded guilty to drug distribution and was then sent back to prison, right? So having the illegal gun, ah, you're fine. Illegal drugs, nah, now you're going back to jail. He was released on parole in June of 2021. In November of 2021, he was charged with theft, civil assault, terroristic threats. Uh, Police report says that Swan uh, stole a pistol from a car uh, in Pittsburgh. When the gun owner showed up, the two men fought. Police say Swan threatened to kill the gun owner and then ran to a nearby park. Police never caught up with him that day. It was several weeks later. Police tracked Swan to an apartment complex uh, using Apple AirPods that uh, Swan had allegedly stolen. Officers found him asleep in his car with a, a pistol, ordered him to get out. He tried to drive away, but his car got stuck. Police report says he jumped out of the car and then ran into the nearby woods and was uh, never apprehended. His parole was revoked Four months later, in April of 2022, after he failed to report to his parole officer. Yeah. And then again, just uh, earlier this week, Breckenridge Police Chief Justin McIntyre and a a police officer from uh, Tarentum, Pennsylvania, uh, shot allegedly by Swan when arguably Swan should have and easily could have. Been behind bars instead of out on the street. Today's Armed Citizen story uh, from uh, WAOW, uh, Elderon, Wisconsin, where an elderly man uh, had to deal with a 22 year old trying to invade his home. That elderly man ended up shooting and killing the uh, much younger intruder. According to uh, local news reports, the uh, 79-year-old man was followed home from a local establishment. He was basically uh, picked out by the uh, intended robber, trailed to his home, uh, and then uh, that 22-year-old literally tried to break in. Deputies from the Marathon County Sheriff's Office dispatched at about 2.30 in the morning uh, to a residence in Eldoran for a report of a man who had been assaulted and stabbed in the face as he got out of his car in his garage. The uh, release from the Marathon County Sheriff's Office says that the elderly man was in possession of a firearm and fired one round that struck the 22-year-old suspect prior to the firearm being wrestled away from him. The suspect suffered a gunshot wound to the chest and died while fleeing the scene. 79-year-old man sustained non-life-threatening injuries and is recovering at a local hospital. Now, again, if this 79-year-old man had had to square off against a uh, 22-year-old in his garage, unarmed and defenseless... I'm guessing that uh, we may still have had a homicide, but it would not have been a justifiable homicide. Instead, it would have been outright murder. Uh, Not only a home invasion, not only an armed robbery, uh, but the death of an innocent victim as well. Because this 79-year-old man was able to protect himself against a much younger individual in the sanctity of his own garage. Again, pulled into his garage, thinking he's safe and sound at home, and that's when he was attacked again, thankfully. Thankfully. The 79-year-old man had the presence of mind to be able to protect himself, not only in his residence, but, you know, coming to and from as well. I'm glad that he uh, is going to recover from his injuries. I feel bad for the family of the 22-year-old who made such a a stupid and fatal mistake, Uh, but I'm very, very gratified that the uh, homeowner in question uh, is alive thanks to his ability to protect and defend himself finally today our good deed of the day on a new york city subway one of the many gun-free zones in new york city uh, criminals seem to understand they are unlikely to run across any armed victims able and willing to fight back and frankly all too often you know when you see somebody accosted on a subway car or a violent robbery that occurs most of the other folks on that train don't want to get involved right and, and, and again, I kind of understand why would you want to put yourself in danger? Why would you want to put yourself at risk if, again, you can't protect yourself? Well, thankfully, there was one good Samaritan in New York City who, despite the fact that uh, he was unarmed, uh, did do the right thing, did step up and uh, help to stop a rape of an 18-year-old woman on a subway in New York City, um, according to Fox 5 in uh, New York. Happened Sunday, just before 10 o'clock in the evening, Upper West Side of Manhattan. Police say the victim was followed by the suspect onto a southbound train in Harlem. Police say the suspect then exposed himself and attempted to pull the victim's pants down while the uh, train was approaching the 76, uh, 72nd Street subway station. That is when a Good Samaritan intervened and uh, helped the victim flee the uh, train car Uh, and run to another to safety the suspect remained on the train then uh, detrained at the 42nd street subway station where he fled no uh police involvement whatsoever apparently within the subway system suspect is still at large fox 5 reports that the victim traveled by private means to a, a local hospital for treatment and evaluation uh the good samaritan hasn't been identified either But as Fox 5 reports, uh, this comes after a a violent Christmas last month in the subway system where there were at least four separate incidents, uh, fairly, again, violent uh, incidents uh, on the uh, subway system, a gun-free zone. According to New York City, criminals don't seem to care. They view that as a uh, target-rich environment. And that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as always and looking forward to speaking with you again tomorrow for the last Cam and Company of the week. It's weird. I've been off. Uh, literally, it was off on Monday, and I've been off as a result all week long. But we will be back tomorrow, and I would encourage you to check out bearingarms.com throughout the day today where we will be updating the website with all of the latest segment news and information that you need to know about. If you like what you see, I'd also encourage you to become a VIP or a VIP Gold subscriber. In addition to uh, getting that warm, fuzzy feeling from supporting our independent pro-Second Amendment journalism, we're going to give you exclusive commentary, analysis, news stories you won't find anywhere else, because your support does matter, and it really does make a difference. So thank you again. Have a great rest of your hump day Wednesday. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.